So a new pastor arrived at a church that had just called him, and he decided that he wanted to visit the Sunday school and to test the knowledge of the children in the Sunday school. And so he turned to one of the boys and he said to him, Who made the walls of Jericho fall down? And the little boy responded, Well, it wasn't me, that's for sure. The pastor was taken aback by the answer. He looked at the Sunday school teacher. He said, Well, what do you make of this? And she said to him, Tommy is a very good boy. He never tells lies. If he said it wasn't him, then it wasn't him. (laughs) It is possible as Christians that we don't have all the details of the Bible in our minds. That there are many facts about Scripture and about which Scripture speaks that we do not know. But there is one fact that all of us must know, and that is the fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, arguable, was the greatest theologian of the New Testament. And he had insight into numerous truths. But Paul had particular insight into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace. It is this gospel that Paul knew and proclaimed that he defends in his epistle to the Galatians. In the first five verses of Galatians, Paul writes his introduction, his greetings. But in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul begins to address the issue at stake, that of the gospel. And he expresses amazement that so many of the Galatians had so easily and quickly began to depart from the gospel which he preached for another gospel which he says is no gospel, it is a false teaching. Paul would have the Galatians know that their defection from the gospel was no minor issue, but rather it was a matter of tremendous magnitude. For he goes on in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians chapter 1 to condemn those agitators, those who were perverting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice he says that those who preach another gospel, that they are under the curse. In verse 10 of chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul addresses a challenge that seemed to have arisen from his critics in Galatia who were suggesting that Paul was curry favoring with people by preaching a law-free gospel. That is, the reason Paul preached the gospel that was devoid of of keeping the law was precisely because he wanted people to be pleased with him. He wanted to be a pleaser of men. And so Paul clarifies that his entire aim is to please God. And then in verse 11, the 
the argument takes a leap forward. For Paul will now defend his gospel, the gospel that he preached, and therefore, by implication, his calling as an apostle. What we have from verses 11 to 24 is this defense. A defense, primarily, that runs along this line. Paul will first of all tell the Galatians that the gospel that he preaches does not originate from man. Verses 11 and 12. He will, try, he will establish the proof that he did not receive his gospel from men by pointing to his own experience of conversion and commission to be an apostle when he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road in verses 13, in verses 13, 14, and 15. He makes the same point in verse 16. But there he begins to, to introduce to them the notion that he was called and Christ was revealed to him for the purpose of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, a task which he did without supervision or oversight from the, the apostles in Jerusalem. Well, let's flesh this out. First of all, as Paul defends the gospel, he tells them in verse 11 and following that the gospel of grace that he proclaims originates from supernatural revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, in verse 11, that the gospel that was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came to me, it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did the Galatians know that Paul's gospel was the right gospel? He tells them negatively. He says, let me tell you about the source of the gospel that I proclaim. Let me tell you where I received it. And he says, negatively, I did not receive it from man. In other words, this gospel was not the product of human intelligence. It does not conform to human standard. And then he goes on in verse 12, making the same point that he did not receive his gospel from human source. He said, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. The gospel that he proclaimed in Galatia, he says, did not originate in man. This gospel did not come from man. He did not receive it from the apostles in Jerusalem. He was not taught it by any man. Now, right there, there seemed to be a contradiction. For if you recall what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, he says, I delivered to you that which I also received. And he went on to say that Christ died according to the scriptures and was raised according to the scriptures. So how is it that here in Galatians chapter 1, he tells us in verse 12, he did not receive the gospel. And then he tells the Corinthians that I pass on to you, I delivered to you that which I also received. Paul is not suggesting that the gospel that he preached was never preached by others before him or that he had never heard the gospel proclaimed. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying to the Galatians is that even if the gospel had been preached before, it never resonated, he never understood it, and he was never instructed in it by any other. That is, the basic framework of the gospel related to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is a gospel that he received directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel is in keeping with the gospel that the church received from the apostles. And that is what the point he's simply making, that, that the gospel that he delivered is the received gospel, the gospel that the church and those before him had proclaimed and which he himself proclaims. So Paul says that he does not receive his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from any human source. He tells them in verse 12, well, how does it come, Paul? He says, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that, that phrase, revelation of Jesus Christ, can be taken in two senses. It can mean the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is the revelation about Jesus Christ, or the revelation that he received from Jesus Christ. For those of you in seminary, we're talking about the objective and the subjective genitive in the Greek. It may be either of those. I am not sure that we should make a division, a sharp division, between the revelation that is about Jesus Christ or the revelation which is from Jesus Christ. But I think that on balance, because Paul is at pains to point out the source of his revelation, and he's saying that the gospel that he received does not come from human source, when he says, but it is through the revelation of Jesus, he means primarily that the gospel that he received comes to him from Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the source of his gospel. And by so speaking, Paul is emphasizing the supernatural character of the gospel that he proclaimed. What he proclaimed to the Galatians and to the Corinthians and to all the other churches that God had used him to, to indeed establish was that which he received directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, the Apostle Paul does something that needs to be understood. He places himself on par with the rest of the apostles. Those apostles who were with Jesus received revelation directly from Christ. Even though they spent three years with the Lord, we know that, that even after Christ was crucified, they didn't understand the gospel. Christ had to come and reveal the gospel to them. He spent 40 days teaching them, explaining the things that he had told them before. They received direct revelation. Paul now says, in essence, that there is no substantial difference between him and the apostles who were before him, for just as they receive revelation from Christ, he has received the same revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. The first point then in these two verses that the gospel that the apostle proclaims comes from supernatural revelation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point that Paul will make is that the transforming encounter, his transforming encounter and his commission on the Damascus road is proof that he received revelation from God. What Paul does then in verse 13 is now he's going to explain how he received this revelation. 
And he begins by rehearsing his former life, his pre-conversion life. He, began, he begins to tell us what he was like before he was actually saved. And in fact, he sums up his life before Christ, before his commitment to Jesus Christ, under two headings. First of all, he, he, he represents himself as one who was engaged in the persecution of the church. First, and secondly, he reveals himself as one who was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Well, the first. Paul says, I want you to take a look at my life. How do, I, how do you know that I receive revelation? You just have to look at my life. You have to look at the profound change that came over my life. I was the most unlikely of candidates to have ever been a follower of Christ. Let me tell you why. He says, first of all, he was, his, call, his task was the persecution of the church. That he was violently opposed and persecuted the church. The, the, the term there is one who is zealous and hot in his rage against the church. So much so that he wanted to not disturb, as one writer says, but to destroy the church. He wanted to annihilate the church. The church for which Christ gave his blood. The church which Christ brought into the world. Paul took it upon himself and made it his mission to exterminate the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, he uses two imperfect verbs here in saying that he persecuted, he was persecuting and trying to destroy to suggest that this was systematic and ongoing persecution of the church. So Paul says that he was violently opposed to and endeavoring to destroy the church. That's what he, his life was like. Secondly, he says that you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And then in verse 14, secondly, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation be more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was secondly a person who was zealous for Judaism. He advanced in Judaism, he says, beyond his contemporaries. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Now, Paul would have had an ordinary upbringing as a Jewish boy. He was born in Tarsus, the province of Cilicia, the Roman province of Cilicia. And he would have begun his education about age six, where he would go off to the synagogue to be instructed. And in a first century Jewish setting, the synagogue was a place of instruction. Paul would have gone there at six. And he had really one textbook. That was the Old Testament scriptures. And at six years old, he would have taken his first course. His first course as a six-year-old would be the book of, guess which? The book of Leviticus. I don't know how many of us do our devotions in Leviticus. Please don't put your hand up. We do not want to lie in the church of the Lord. <laughs> but why Leviticus? 
Because the book of Leviticus teaches us about the worship of God and our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. He would have then learned Leviticus, the theology of Leviticus, and then considered and studied the rest of the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible. Then he would move on to the rest of the Old Testament. By the time Paul would have turned 12 years old, he would now begin to engage in Judaism proper. That is, there was in the first century, not only the Old Testament scripture, the Bible, which makes the first part of our Bible, but there was what was known as the oral tradition. This was a body of scribal, rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament scripture. And this body of literature that was codified and written down was at the heart of the Pharisees' religion and Judaism as a whole. There were some 613 additional regulations and laws that were laid out in this body of literature. At, at the age of 12, Paul would then begin to encounter and deal with and study rabbinic interpretation of scripture. And so he would be reading, Rabbi A says this, but Rabbi B says that. And he would have been engaged in then the scribal interpretation of scripture. Sometime, perhaps in his late teens, he moves to Jerusalem. Paul goes off to university. And he goes to Jerusalem and becomes a pupil of one of the greatest scholars of the day, Gamaliel. We do not know how long Paul studied under him. But what is clear is that Paul excelled. That the Apostle Paul was the poster boy of Judaism. He was a rising star of Judaism. First of all, he advanced in the teachings of Judaism beyond many of his peers. But he not only advanced in his knowledge of the law and of the interpretation of the law, Paul was also one who was zealous for Judaism. He was the defender of Judaism. He considered himself in the same vein like Old Testament figures like Phineas who stood up to, to protect the honor of God. Paul believed that by stamping out Christianity, he was defending the honor of God. Because fundamental to his objection regarding Christ was not simply because people believed in Jesus Christ, but because they, they proclaimed him as a crucified Messiah. And for Paul, that was anathema. You could have a Messiah and you could have crucifixion, but you could never have together a crucified Messiah. That was his life before he was converted. He was a man who persecuted the church and sought to destroy it, and he was zealous for the traditions of his father. All of this changed on the Damascus Road. And here he now makes three comments about this transformation. First in verse 15 he says, But when it pleased God, 
who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Paul says something occurred in his life. This is what I was before, but then something occurred that is on the Damascus Road. He says, first of all, that God was pleased to call him. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, Paul wants us to understand that his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus did not just begin there. It began in the counsels of God. It began in eternity past. It began in the sovereign will, electing will of God in eternity. Because it is in eternity, even before his, his mother was conceived, even before he was conceived himself, that God separated him. Same language used in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit had said, Separate unto me Barnabas. Paul says, it pleased the Lord to separate me from my mother's womb. And Paul, in talking about his mother's womb, is actually alluding to Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah in chapter 1 and Isaiah in chapter 49, who speaks of being separated unto God or, or chosen by God from the womb. Paul is simply saying that the Damascus Road experience is rooted first and foremost in the eternal counsel of God. God separated him. You need to know that if you are a Christian, that your salvation did not simply begin the moment you believed, but that it is by God's sovereign pleasure that in eternity he already separated you to himself to be his child. What happens in life is only a fulfillment of the sovereign will of God from eternity past. Paul says something secondly then about his conversion. Not only does he then link it to God's sovereign pleasure in eternity, he says that God called him through grace. He understood that even though he was a missionary for Judaism, and even though he was doing great things where the law was concerned, he understood that God called him powerfully into salvation and called him into the ministry of the gospel. And by the way, let's be clear that Paul does not divide his call to be a Christian from his call and commission as an apostle. They are one and the same thing. They happen together. They cannot be divided. But Paul says that it was by grace that God called him. And he says in verse 15, but it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. In other words, it was nothing that he had done. He did not deserve the call of God. But the Lord called him into a relationship with Christ, powerfully and sovereignly saved him and commissioned him. And then Paul reveals that not only did God set him apart in eternity, called him in time by his grace, he says that God called him through his grace to reveal his son in me. That is... A pregnant expression. To reveal his son in me. Not only was God pleased to set him apart. 
Not only was God pleased to call him out of darkness into light, but God was pleased to reveal his son, he says, in me. What Paul wants, I think, to indicate is that his encounter with, with Christ on the Damascus road was not merely an encountering of some abstract biblical construct. Nor was it a mere physical and external encounter with Christ. He, he did see the Lord. If you, if you look at the accounts of his, of his conversion in Acts chapter 9, we know that there was a demonstration, physical demonstration. Christ appeared in blazing light. Paul was struck down and struck blind. He heard a voice. So the others also who were there who thought it thundered. There was this physical phenomena to the appearance of Jesus. But Paul says that God revealed Christ not to him, but in him. And the proposition there is important. Paul says that he was called through grace. God called him through his grace to reveal his son in me. And what Paul wants us to understand is that the encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road, where he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, it was first and foremost an internal and spiritual revelation. That is, in meeting Jesus, it resulted in his illumination. He understood Christ who appeared to him to be the Son of God. God was pleased to reveal his Son in him. He recognized that Christ was divine, that he is divine. If you were to read the account in Acts 9, in fact there are three accounts of Paul's conversion. Acts 9, of course, is that first passage. Acts 22 and Acts 26, Paul testifies of his account. On each occasion where his testimony is repeated, it is interesting that Paul recognized Christ as Lord. He hears a voice when he encounters Christ, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, what was he doing? He was persecuting the church. But the Lord who appeared to him says, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because the church belongs to him. It is his body. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to resist me. But notice that Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. He is Lord. Paul understands then at the revelation of Christ, his divine status. You know, Paul was present when Stephen was killed in Acts 7. And by the way, Stephen was a man, we're told in chapter 6 of out of Acts was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a tremendous theologian. 
one preacher friend of mine tells me that Stephen was even more of a scholar than even the Apostle Peter. And you can see his sermon in Acts 7. A marvelous sermon. A sermon which began with God's dealings with Israel to Jesus Christ. He caps off that sermon by saying that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. Stephen testified in the presence of Paul of Christ's Lordship. But Paul didn't get it. He didn't believe it. He didn't want to hear it. But on the Damascus Road, in blazing splendor, God revealed in him his son. God gave him an internal revelation of Jesus Christ and his supremacy as Lord. He came to see Christ as the only Savior and as the only Lord. Christ was revealed in him. And it is in this encounter with Christ that we have the basis of Pauline theology. What I'm saying is, it is in the revelation of Christ on the Damascus road that he, he knew of Christ as divine. It is there that he recognized him as a savior who died for sinners and rose again from the dead. And it is there that he understood the doctrine of justification by faith. For if Christ had died and paid for his sins, there was no longer now any need to endeavor to keep the law to be saved when Christ has purchased salvation. And so salvation was received by faith. But this encounter, Paul tells us, not only brought this internal illumination, but it led to an internal transformation. Paul says that Christ, the Son of God, was revealed in him so that he gained truth. He was illuminated, but Christ was revealed in him. And this expression, in him, Paul wants us to understand. He says, Christ was revealed in me. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, and it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Paul says that, that the Son of God was revealed in him, it means he had an internal, spiritual appreciation of Christ, but that Christ was revealed in him, his character was revealed in him. That is, our Lord Jesus Christ was dwelling in him and transforming him. You know that Paul was transformed in this encounter. For he tells us in Philippians chapter 3 of his confidence in his four inherited privileges gained from his Jewish heritage. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And then he tells us of his three personal achievements in which he boasted. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is by the law, blameless. Paul used to boast about what he inherited from his Jewish roots. And these privileges were considerable. They were the people of God. He himself belonged to one of the strictest sects in Israel, a Pharisee. He was zealous in persecuting the church. He was blameless with regards to the outward and external requirements of the law. 
But when he encountered Christ, he was transformed so much that he could say, Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. That I might gain him. That I might be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of God, which is by faith. He is transformed so he could say, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He wants to be conformed to Christ's death. And what, what is Paul doing then in these verses here in verses 14 to 16? He's saying essentially that the gospel that he proclaims, he has received it by revelation and his own transformation, his own transformed life is proof positive that he has encountered the Christ of the gospel that he proclaims. So if anyone wants to dispute that he has actually met Christ and received revelation, he says, I want you to look at me and I want you to look at the life I used to live before when I persecuted the church and what has occurred to me now that I have now been called by God. Two points made. That the gospel that he proclaims he receives by revelation and that secondly, his transformation and commission on the Damascus road proves that encounter with God or with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the third point that he makes in these verses, from verse 16 to verse 24, is that the revelation that he received from Christ was for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles. He says this, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He was called by God, separated by God, to preach Christ among the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. It does not mean that Paul was not concerned about Jews, his own people. He tells us that in Romans, that he wished himself were cut off for his own people. He, whenever he went to a new city in the book of Acts, he would go to the synagogues to preach the gospel. But God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles as Peter was called to the apostle to the circumcision. What he then does in verse 17 and following is to explain that, that he was not dependent upon the apostles in Jerusalem for his commission and call or for his gospel. For he tells them that when he received Christ, or when he met Christ on the Damascus road, that he left then and went into Arabia, a vast territory that would have taken in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia today and even going to the very border of Damascus. He went there. Some people said he went to meditate, but we believe he may have gone to preach. He then said, then he returned to Damascus from Arabia and spent three years ostensibly preaching and teaching in Damascus. It was only after three years that Paul then actually met the apostles in Jerusalem. He said he went to Jerusalem to visit the apostle Peter, that is to be better acquainted with him, although 
I think C.H. Dodd is correct to say that when Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with Paul, he didn't go there to talk about the weather. That may be true, but Paul says he went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter better. And that he spent 15 days. And that he did not meet with any other apostle in Jerusalem except James, who is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's doing there, he's saying, there is no way that I could have received my gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem because I was already preaching it three years before I met them. I only met two of them. I only spent a brief time there. And when I left, I departed for Syria and Cilicia, the, the territory in which he was born in Tarsus. And he said that the believers in Jerusalem did not know him by faith in verse 22. Those Christians who were in Judea did not know him, but they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith. Why is Paul making this point? He's saying, look, my gospel came from God. I had minimal contact with the disciples in Jerusalem. I was preaching the gospel before I met them. I was preaching it after them. And I was not in the region, I was not in Judea, where the apostles were based. I was in a different territory preaching the gospel. So there's no way I could have received the gospel from them or could be under their supervision. He said that those in Judea did not know him by face, but that they were glorifying God in him. They glorified God for what God had done in him and what God had done through him. My dear friends, this passage reminds us that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes by supernatural revelation. And it means that you and I are to submit to God's revelation, God's supernatural revelation. Recently, I read another story of a, another little boy who went to Sunday school. And he came home. His mother said to him, well, what did you learn at Sunday school? The boy said, I learned about Moses. That God sent him behind enemy lines to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. And when Moses came to the Red Sea, he called all the engineers and told them to build a bridge. And all of Israel crossed the Red Sea on this bridge. And then Moses looked and he saw the Egyptians and their tanks coming. So very quickly, like the speed of lightning, he took his walkie-talkie and he called headquarters and he asked them to send bombers. And they came and they bombed the bridge and Israel was saved. The mother looked at the little boy and she said, Son, did your teacher really tell you the story like that? The little boy said, well, not quite. But if I told you the way she told me, you would not believe it. Our world is opposed to supernatural. Bultmann, the German theologian, was among the earliest who wanted to exercise the miraculous from the Gospels. Didn't believe in the supernatural. But it is B.B. Warfield, that great Presbyterian theologian who reminded us that 
that Christianity is essentially supernatural. We have a supernatural fact that God created the heavens and the earth. We have a supernatural act in God becoming man in Christ and dying on the cross of our sins. And we have supernatural revelation. The gospel that Jesus saves and is the only Savior, that he died for sinners and rose again, comes to us from the mind and from the mouth of God. It must be because we could not by any other means know God. God revealed himself to Paul in the gospel, and he revealed himself in all of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. It means that you and I, must submit ourselves to this revelation of Scripture. It means that we must bow our knees that God has spoken and He has devised a way of salvation through Christ. We must submit ourselves to this revelation. There's a book by Trollope, a classic, He Knew He Was Right where Louis Trevelyan was a young aristocrat who lived in London and married a, a young woman whose father owned a plantation. And one day a family friend comes to London. Her parents' friends came to London and she entertained him. But Trevelyan, Louis Trevelyan, was a very jealous husband. He didn't like the fellow, so he told his wife never to receive him at their home again. But the wife was upset. She thought that it was unreasonable had known this man from I was a child. And so she defied her husband's request and kept receiving this family friend. Trevelyan, the husband, began to be eaten up with jealousy, so much so that he runs away to Italy. And he's eaten up and consumed by the notion of his wife's infidelity. Eventually, the very thought of it drove him mad. And it actually killed him. He knew he was right. But he was wrong. He was wrong. Paul was sincerely convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah. But he was sincerely wrong. And you and I must submit our thinking and judgment to the revelation of God. We must put ourselves under God's revealed word and his gospel. We must receive the revelation of scripture as a revelation from God himself. As God speaking to us, we must receive the gospel as the good news from God to us. That there is salvation and forgiveness and grace in Christ. We must pray that God would give us more revelation. We must ask God not only to give us scripture, but to reveal Christ in our hearts. We need a revelation not only in the scriptures, but in our hearts. Paul says, God revealed his son in me. And so we need Christ to know him in a personal and an intimate way. We want to know his love. We want to know the width and the length 
and the depth and the height of the love of Christ which passes understanding. We want to know the will of Christ which is our sanctification. We want to know the hope of his calling in us which is the hope of glory. We, we, we must indeed know more of Christ and we must say, Lord, reveal Christ to me. I want to know him. I want Christ to be revealed in me. And if, if you go to God and ask him, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness will shine in your heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you are to say to God, I want to know Christ, he will give you a greater appreciation of the riches and the wealth and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We want a revelation and we have received it in the scripture, but all we want it in our hearts. We want the things of scripture to become alive in us. My dear friends, if you have received revelation from Jesus Christ, if you have come to know him within you, you must walk in gratitude and love, for it is only by grace that he called you in eternity, and it is by grace he called you in time, and it's only by grace that you have come to know him. My dear friends, let me say, secondly, that the revelation of Jesus Christ to you must lead to a transformed life. You see, Paul had a before and after picture. Before he met Christ, he was diametrically opposed to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. But when he was saved, there is the after picture. He devoted himself fully to Jesus. And when, when God reveals Christ in you, it must lead to a before and after picture. The person that you were yesterday must not be the person you are today when Christ has been revealed. You must be changed, for grace never touches a person and leaves him or her unchanged. The revelation of Christ to you finally should lead you to proclaim Christ. Paul was called and given the gospel for the purpose of proclamation. And you and I, we know that we are not apostles, not in the sense of the Apostle Paul or the other 11 apostles. But we have this in common. When the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to us, he reveals himself that we should proclaim his truth. And he reveals himself in our hearts by giving us a personal knowledge of himself that we might speak personally about the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. May God help you then to depend upon his power to submit yourself to divine revelation, to receive the gospel, and to receive all of God's revelation, to allow that revelation to transform you, and to proclaim the Christ who has revealed himself to you by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.